Wednesday, March 24th, 2021. This is Messiah Matters number 337. Forgot to take my allergy medication, so this could get interesting. My name is Caleb Haig. And what, three days without a furnace now? Because our cold. furnace has failed. <laughs> it's pretty cold. We have little space heaters, Baruch Hashem, so we have power and we have warmth in, in some places. But yeah, it's... Uh, Looking like we're going to be needing a new furnace here, and I'm Rob Vanoff. There you go. I was I was wondering when when that was. See coming. it. You're keeping me on my toes. Keeping I'm not practiced. I'm not practiced. This show is going to be dedicated to Lou Draper, who is now with the Lord. Oh, uh, I saw that. Oh, I wept. Yep. Our uh, hearts go out to the Draper family and to Erna, and uh, but we are also. Thankful that the Lord has so uh, someone in heaven is watching Messiah Matters. Right <laughs> exactly, <now>. exactly. <laughs> I think that we're the last, the last concern on anyone's mind in heaven. Hey, um, you know, I don't know. But uh, Lou is with the Lord, and we are uh, grateful that uh, the Father took him home. As my uncle said at my brother's funeral, promoted to glory. Right. Mm. Yeah. All right. Well. What up, everybody? It's been a little while. It's been a week. And uh, Passover is now upon us. We've had some interesting emails. And uh, so it's it's kind of interesting because I think probably one of the main topics that we'll talk about, and maybe it won't be a main topic, but it'll probably be the theme of this show, is our our uh, email from, from David, David McDonald. Now, David is a dear brother. And a good friend, I consider him a good friend. Uh, he is one of the leaders of a congregation up in Canada. Um, and just a, we've been there several times, just a wonderful group of people up there. And those people are so dear to my heart. They live in one of the most beautiful places in the Americas, in my opinion. And uh, just really, really great people. Um, we always love it. And to go up there and see all those people. And I, re, people might remember that uh, I mispronounced one of the one of the family's names. Frank. Frank. Frank's last oh, name. Caleb. And, and Yeah, I know. Actually, it was his daughter who was really like, that's not our last name. <laughs> anyway, so the, uh, people who have been following this show for the past. I don't they know. are so fan. They are so uh uh, patient. <laughs> They're very patient. They have nine or 10 or 12 kids or something like that. You know, and actually I, I think that she is, uh, pregnant again. And, and, um, I can't never remember how many kids everybody has. Anyway, I told, I told Frank that if uh, location, I have another baby, I wanted to name it Kraken after the Seattle Kraken, which he laughed at. Um, but he is a huge, huge Maple Leafs fan. And I was like, maybe you should try to figure out how to name your child like Maple or something like that. <laughs> and he was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look it up in Hebrew right now. Anyway, okay, all of this is off topic. Anyway, sorry about that. That's the rabbit trail for me for the day. Anyway, okay, so back to uh, our good friend David. David wrote in, and I didn't actually grab his, Should I mean, should we read some of his, should we read some of his uh, email? Sure, it's great. It's, I loved it. Thank you, David, for taking the time to to do that. Okay. Well, here we go. Um, it's a very long email, which is fine, 
actually, he he did very well at being concise on what what he's trying to say. And so, uh, since it's a longer email, what we're going to do is we'll read just a little bit of it, and then um, we'll try to sum up. Let me explain. There, there's no time. Let me sum up. Okay. Um, it has been a long time since I've reached out. Okay. Uh, he says, topic one, tradition. I know so cliche to put the exclamation point after tradition. Okay. He's, uh, it's a reference to Fiddler on the Roof. The topic of tradition has been broached many times, uh, many of the time on your show. And with a little more frequency in the last uh, few weeks. Actually, this is true. One of the things that I've realized is that in the past, I don't know, month or two, I've wanted to put something about tradition in the title of every show. So yes, this has been kind of a, a running theme for the past co- at least couple weeks, if not a couple months. Off the topic, I want to make it abundantly clear that we are on the same page with respect to the primacy of of scripture. Tradition takes a back seat and should never nullify what Hashem has revealed in his word. Therefore, when we are on this, uh, when, when your discussion on tradition revolve around or end up articulating this truth, I can say amen. However, many times the comments leading up to the conclusion are either one, said in such a way that I must be misunderstanding, two, incomplete so as to paint a fuzzy picture, or three, not complete thought uh, completely thought out recent comments have had me lean i think that third three. one is a big one yeah that third one is spot on david thank you and i appreciate david's careful and kind and thorough <laughs> skill in right. communicating but but I, I i totally agree that that third point i'm guilty of that conflating terms so now this you can tell that david is a smart thinker he's also taken uh, greek at Torah resource institute so and he knows good coffee and he knows good coffee that's true so, yes so we can that's to his account so he what he ends up doing is he uh he goes into paradosis uh, in the greek uh, the word tradition he references mark 7 5 mark 7 8 galatians 1 14 second thessalonians 2 15 and three six, and then juxtaposes it uh, to uh, the nice I- word, Caleb. Thank you. Yes, juxtaposition. Yes. Nice. Uh, this is this is a. I can tell already. This is going to be a good. We're, we're on the fire already. <laughs> <laughs> um, basically, what he what, what his what his uh, what his beef is here. Let me just get down to it. Is where's that, the beef? He, he's where's the beef? He's saying that uh, that tradition is something that is handed down and that we are not necessarily talking about. So he brings up the the comment that I made about the person who said that they didn't have any tradition, but then uh, ties their tzitzit, each, each of the four tzitzit in four different ways so that he's not holding to a tradition. And what David is saying, this isn't tradition. This is actually custom. Tradition is something that is handed down and generational. That is, uh, it, it might be man-made, but it is handed down nonetheless. So if a person just makes up something that they do on a regular basis or is their custom, it's custom, not tradition. Right. And with and one of the points I would like to insert here, too, is it with this particular individual, let's say he just does this as an experiment one time, because often those of us, you know, over the years, you have to replace your tzitzit, right? You can't just they they fall apart, they fade, they tear or break. So if he just did this one time and then next time did it differently, it's not even a custom. It, it's just an experiment. It's just right. a, an, a creative kind of expression 
that doesn't even qualify as a custom in my. Okay, let's talk about my, this for a few seconds though, because ultimately, let's take the the, the uh, scenario of the gentleman who ties each seat seat a different way, so that he's not following a tradition. So then the question is: is well, how are you tying them? Because ultimately, are you tying them per a? Now I'm going to use the word tradition. That is a handed down tradition from Judaism. In other words, there's Ashkenazic, there's Sephardic, there's you know there's all these different ways to tie your tzitzit numerically. Blue, uh, blue thread, right? White with with or or just all white. Yeah. So so I agree that what David is saying in this in this email is spot on. Do they do they drag on the floor? <laughs> Right? I mean, I've I've certainly been careless with my with my use of the term tradition. However, I would say that uh, one, and we see this within the Torah movement a lot. Okay, so so for instance, if now I've been really pondering, and I did a video on what is Messianic Judaism. I I've really been pondering the term Messianic and what that means. I've also been pondering the term Hebrew roots. Also did another video on that, and, and I looked it up. It has the word messy in it. Well, that's true. Um, but anyway, um, there, you can find those videos on Growing a Messiah, the Growing a Messiah YouTube. Um, so I would, I would suggest that within Messianic Judaism, what is actually being done is people are adopting tradition, not custom, tradition from various sects of Judaism. Now, whether or not that's right or not, I'm, I'm not here to, I'm not going to comment on that. In other words, the, the fact that you have a synagogue service, it's modeled after something, if it's modeled after a synagogue service. And that is tradition that has been handed down. That's not custom. I mean, and, and uh, this, this is, a, there's nothing wrong with tradition. It, you know, the way that, that I celebrate uh, Passover may have some tradition that has that we've adopted certainly it does for instance and i'll give up throw one out there we still use seder plates now this is a tradition this is not obviously in the in the torah it's not you know it's not a tradition from the torah it's not a, a commandment and it's not a custom either because i didn't make it up i didn't just say oh here's a plate let's use this every and we'll put these things here no it's a tradition that we adopted from judaism now whether or not that's right or not that's a whole different conversation but ultimately, what we're talking about is tradition versus custom. And what I would say is with the person who, who ties their, tied their tzitzit in four different ways, I would guess that most, if not all four of those tzitzit are, were tied according to a tradition and not a custom. Now, it's his custom that he tied all four different, four different ways. And so he's making up a new custom. Well, if he does it more than once, if he does it again next time, I would say, sure. yeah. And technically, then, if he teaches someone else, hey, someone else is coming to the faith, and they're like, hey, I want to do it. Let me show you how to do it. And then they start doing that. Now you have a little snowball that could potentially get bigger and bigger and bigger and become a tradition. Agreed. That's the way I look at it. Uh, what was I going to say? That that this this tension between tradition and innovation is is a classic tension in rabbinic in the rabbinic world it's in rabbinic literature in the in the the talmud 
And later in the Kabbalistic world, you have this issue of the people who tend, it, it's kind of people tend to either side of that spectrum. The traditionalist is the person that is fearful, more fearful of innovation because they don't know if the new thing, it would be acceptable to God. And so the idea is, I don't want to wear any new clothes. So you, this is why you go to, I've been to Meisharim a few times in Jerusalem. I think you've been there, Caleb. And, and they're wearing, it's like you're going back into the 18th century. I mean, they're wearing knickerbockers and, you know, in some of the places it looks like they're wearing, you know. You're transported 18, back to the 1600s. Into the 1700s. Yeah, yeah. 17th, 17th century, 17th, 18th century um, Eastern Europe. You know, right. and and so why is that? That is because there's a fear of new things, new things bad. Now, but then, the, but the question is, what about uh, new things that it, that would help the lifestyle? And there's a great book on this called Defenders of the Faith. Defenders of the Faith by a famous um, uh, Jewish sociologist. Uh, his name is uh, Samuel Heilman. Samuel Heilman is called Defenders of the Faith. You should read it if you're interested in this. He's Orthodox Jew in America. He goes to celebrate the, the, the high holy days in like ultra Orthodox world in Jerusalem. And he feels like a complete outsider. I mean, he's, he's Orthodox, you know, he's halakhically observant and everything, but he goes to Jerusalem and he feels like it's a completely different world. Like he's transported into a completely different world. And they accept him in, they learn that he's a researcher, but that he's kosher, you know, but he, he talks about all these places where they're afraid of new things. It's all we must do. We must preserve what was handed down to us. Right. And, and then in the, in the wake of the Holocaust, it's even all the more important because it's like it was destroyed and we, it's on us to preserve what had, what, what the world tried to destroy. It's, I mean, it's very moving. And, and but then he, he ends up meeting a sofer. A guy who fixes tefillin and writes mezuzah, you know, mezuzahs and, right. and Torah scrolls. And he starts interviewing the, the, the sofer. And he learns that the sofer is, is using high quality leather, new, new types of uh, uh, thread. Innovation. Yeah, exactly, Caleb. Exactly. <laughs> Innovation. And he's like, wait. And, and, You're not and allowed he's to like, do well, that. <laughs> tell me about the difference between like this and a thousand years ago, like Rashi's. He's like, oh, we make tefillin way better now. He's like, we've got way better materials. And so the irony was at the very heart of this ultra-Orthodox, uh, uh, you know, super conservative, anything new is suspicious community. At the very heart, the sofa responsible for correcting Torah scrolls, for making tefillin, for, for making mezuzot, is is like has a cell phone and is innovating <laughs> is, is saying hey we can do it better because we've got better materials available so that's that's the one extreme the other is like is like the the other side and we see this in american politics too is the 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 tendency on the opposite side of the spectrum towards liberalism that's going to be your your jewish expressions in america that are so liberal that you know, yeah, the Torah is probably written by man. It's just man's tradition. Right. You know, Jewish identity is really, 
you know, between Hanukkah and the Holocaust, you know, these are the big items and that we have our peoplehood around. And now the maybe the state of or the nation of Israel, but even then Jews in America have are ambivalent. Are we pro-Israel? Are we against Israel? Are we pro-Palestinian Jews? You know, that kind of thing. And so the idea is that everything's new because it's everything's now shaped by the whims and the, the fads of, of the world. Right. And so you can see how it's understandable that that every community is going to be full of people that are struggling with where are we on this spectrum between tradition and just not innovating anything new or everything's new out with the old. Everything old is suspicious because it's primitive and they didn't have information and it's backward. Right. And and we all have to wrestle through this space. So I, I really appreciate David's email, his thoughtful, carefully written email to really say, Hey guys, dig deeper on this because I think it, we're, we're being fuzzy. So I appreciate that. Yeah. And yeah, there's, it's interesting because then we have tradition and theology as well, right? Handed down tradition and theology. Now we see this uh, a lot within the church. So for instance, why is it, and, and my wife and I were talking about this the other day, why is it that uh, Christians, so the Christian church as a whole, um, broad brushstroke here, predominantly says that the Saturday Sabbath is, is done away with? Well, I would hypothesize and I would, I would put forward the notion that this is handed down tradition. In other words, uh, people have been taught this. If, if you really look at the evidence, I mean, if you really just look at the, at the word of God, uh, the, the Sabbath is said to be forever. It's throughout all your generations. It's a blessing. It's, you know, all these wonderful things. It's a gift from God, all this kind of stuff. And uh, then if you ask somebody who thinks that the Sabbath has been done away with, you say, okay, well, well t- show me where the Sabbath has been done away with. Well, they, they have two passages. They're going to go to a p- passage in Acts where Paul, it says that, and they, they uh, met on the first day of the week. But that doesn't say anything about changing the Sabbath to Sunday or anything like that. And then they're going to go to Revelation, where John says, "And I was, uh, I was I the saw spirit this, on the Lord's uh, day. spirit on on the Lord's day." And once again, we have no evidence that this is talking about changing the Sabbath or anything like this. Um, and and so you have two proof texts that say nothing about the Sabbath. And but so they see it that way. But they well, they see it that way because they've been of, told. They've been. Is that what you're getting at? In uh, yeah, other words, they, they see it that way because of tradition. Is my point because of tradition, theological good, good. tradition, the handed down theological tradition. And I would, and, and you know, I, right. They, in other words, they didn't come up with it on their own. Right, exactly. And they wouldn't. You wouldn't come up with that on your own. But someone start. It started somewhere. Well, I would. I would also put forward that it comes possibly from a bit of anti-Semitism. Now I'm now I'm not a person who's going to say that there's anti-Semitism between behind every rock, but certainly if you look at Eusebius and uh, some of the writings and what was going on, you have the church fathers who are clearly saying to Christians, "Don't celebrate the Sabbath, don't celebrate the festivals," because that's what the Jews do, and the, and it it might not necessarily be from anti like blatant and like I hate the Jews kind of anti-Semitism, but more from the idea of the Jews killed Christ. We want to be separate from them. We don't want to look like Jews in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. But even Eusebius keeps the tradition of Polycarp. I mean, he he, yes. he preserves he preserves the Polycarp, who was bishop of Smyrna, right? And, one, and of was the, a one of the seven churches addressed in Revelation. And he was they a were, They kept the yeah. They kept the Pesach. Yeah, on fourteen, 14. on Nisan fourteen, right? And and Polycarp was a bishop of Smyrna, who and Smyrna is one of the seven churches in Revelation to receive a a, I, a, a letter. I completely agree with you. All so, I'm saying. So oh. you're right. This is a it. There's a lot of things 
and I think what your point is, is that the polemical nature, nature between believing communities and Jewish communities that rejected the gospel, that Christians didn't, they lacked a few things. They lacked, you know, well, none of us lack, or, or sorry, none of us, sorry, all of us lack maturity there in different go. areas, right? We're, we're all growing in maturity, but we also lack access to best information. Right. God, God knows this, you know, and so. So, but, but now, now we can take this to a, to a, uh, now I would say that, that receiving tradition uh, like that can be bad. It can also be very good. Okay. Because we stand on the, on the shoulders of the people who have gone before us. Right. Now with this said, you have people in um, various, excuse me, various movements, various, um, you know, groups. Torah movement, Hebrew roots movement, you have people who think that they're standing on solid tradition. And what they're doing is they're standing on solid YouTube videos or unsolid YouTube videos, <laughs> oh, right? Golly, it's, yeah. it's not tradition anymore. And I know, I know I have personal friends who have fallen into this trap. They, they watch stuff on YouTube and I get that this show is being broadcast on YouTube right now. I'm not, but all I'm saying is, you know, uh, a lot of people in, in these movements, they'll call things like seminary cemetery but then they get their their uh their knowledge from wikipedia rabbi youtube or rabbi yeah, google exactly. yeah exactly and it's like man you know so the levels of tradition you know not all tradition is is equal um some tradition is you know here's equal. another thing i think about too Caleb is it you know i'm teaching uh greek uh praise god portora resource institute now what is this, this is my 10th year i think teaching it and I've used Dr. Mounts's uh, Zondervan uh, Basics of Biblical Greek right. every year because it, his third edition, it's a great book. Well, three years ago, he came out, you know, Zondervan came out with a fourth edition. And I don't, I, I'm so used to the third edition. Yeah. I've got all my notes in my book, uh, hand notes of the workbooks, uh, all the work. Um, I, I know that David, who wrote our email, he even went went through first year with, he's got the same book. It's like, now I'm having to shift because right. uh, next fall, it's it's students over the last couple of years have said, yeah, it's getting harder to find the third edition copies because they don't make them anymore. So now I got to shift right. into a new, but here's the thing. I'm, I decided I'm going to stick with mounts, you know, because this would be an opportunity to say, you know what? Right. If, if, if Zondervan's moving forward, maybe I'll find a better curriculum. I said, you know what? I'm going to stick with Mounts. Why? Because I like his approach. He's not going to change it that much. But here's another thing that has to do with tradition is the, the rationale that Mounts gives for creating another Greek grammar. There's probably 50 different Greek right. grammar, New Testament Greek grammars out there. Right. Caleb, you're going through this with publication on uh, your commentary on Acts, commentary on Colossians. There's thousands of commentaries already out there. So as an author, you're 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 kind of in a in a tightrope. It's like, well, wait a minute. Should I just tell everybody to read all these other commentaries? Boy, you or are... do I have a new thing? And I think part of our labor, part of our labor yeah. in the kingdom is to to digest and learn from those that came before us to to digest and have it become part of us and part of our story now in what in the world we're confronted with now by God's grace and that we then re-communicate again um, and then sometimes we'll highlight 
and say, you know, I really like what Tim Haig says in his commentary here. I like what, um, you know, any of these scholars that we read or say we disagree with them on this, but we, we seek to advance the conversation in a helpful way. And that's where tradition and innovation kind of crossover. It's right at that point. Boy, I was going through this yesterday. I'm, I'm currently writing in, in Colossians 2, right? And not because Colossians 2 is my focus. The book of Colossians is what I'm actually studying in right now. So I'm, I'm uh, preparing to, to speak on Colossians. <clears throat> well, everyone in the Torah movement, uh, you know, knows Colossians 2 very well. And Right. It's one of those done away with passages. Right. right? And so and so I'm I'm going through Colossians and I got, you know, probably too many commentaries, if that's possible, because it's too hard to keep up with all of them. With that said. um, Yesterday, I just thought to myself, this is overwhelming. The idea of studying Gnosticism and trying to understand the the, uh, you know, the Apollo cult and all these things to try to frame Colossians two. And I'm reading, you know, Robert Wall is probably one of my favorite commentators. And uh, I'm reading him and I'm just thinking, this guy has done way better than I could ever do. Why, why am I even doing this? And, uh, um, you know, I was talking to Michael about it and he, he said, you, you should put, ultimately, he kind of took me down off the ledge. Like, you should put a picture of these people, and these specific people next to your desk. And the reason why is because I was saying to him, you know, I'm not a good Greek scholar. I've taken Greek. I can, you know, I can stumble my way through some Greek, but I'm not a Greek scholar. And these guys are just far above anything that I could, you know, they're explaining all these different, and this is the antecedent of this and the root of this and blah. And I'm thinking why, you know, I can't, I'm not going to be able to recreate this. And I had to think to myself, this isn't your audience. Your audience is not, your audience doesn't know any Greek and they don't really care. So it's now my job, you know, these other scholars have done all the Greek work. Now it's my job to take what they've done and to really kind of bring it down to. Well, you know what? I, I just want to stop you right there. What's my job? Right. We each need to ask ourselves this question. What? What's? I like to put it this way. What's it? What's my lane? Or what's my wheelhouse? Right. right. People say, "What's in my wheelhouse?" Or "What's my skill set?" Why? Because God has for each one of us. Right. That's what He's building His ecclesia. We're all like these living stones, and. How are we a living stone? We're a living stone when we're alive in Messiah. <laughs> uh, name of <laughs> it's the Caleb's, name of the church that I passed. Uh, church that we're all uh, that we're alive in Messiah. As li- but we're stones in that we're being refined to be consistent, to have wisdom and skill and um, uh, dependability on the skill set that God trains us each right. to walk according to the way he has for each of us to contribute to the whole. And it's going to be unique and it'll be a blessing to others. And each one of us, it's a, it's incumbent upon us to seek the Lord first and foremost in all things, of course, but also to hear wisdom from others about our giftings and right. about our skills and what we have to contribute to God's kingdom. And that's our lane then. Then I stay in my lane. Right. And what, you know, and it's, it's, if we're on a highway, you know, you see drivers who are like swerving different lanes, you know, that's a person who's not clear. They're not focused. Right. They're there. And, you know, we're, we're to, to do our job, to know what our job is and to do it as unto the Lord. Right. But if I don't know what my job is, how can I do it unto the Lord? Right. So I just wanted to pause there with Caleb's like, what's my job? And what I appreciate about what you're saying, Caleb, is that you're assessing the needs of the flock 
that are on your under your care and in in your reach, right? Well, and, here's and, the thing: here's and you the thi- want to serve them, right? right. That's, and that's, he, here's the thing about that, though, is that I think a lot of the time the natural inclination for any teacher is to try to do something that's not necessarily in their lane, as you would put it. In other words, we see all this cool stuff that we're into, and it's like, yeah, this is awesome because, you know, oh, look at what they did in the Greek here. Like, I want to explain this. But ultimately, we have to keep reminding ourselves, this is not my audience. My audience isn't going to care about this. Anyway, um, let's pause for a few seconds. First of all, uh, at the beginning of the show, I did not tell you uh, you should subscribe to this YouTube channel if you haven't already. Please go ahead and subscribe. We have a uh, number of people who watch our videos and don't subscribe. So go ahead and subscribe. Also, you can uh, be a part of the conversation by uh, calling our comment line, 253-465-3205. It's 253-465-3205. And shoot us an email, cheggatorresource.com. Um, and then also, Lee uh, has given us a super chat, and we are always appreciative of our super chats. Nice. Uh, thank you, Lee, for the super chat. You've been blessed. We also were sent a new sound clip. Now, I'm not going to tell you where this is from. If you know where it's from, then shame on you. And if you don't know where it's from, I'm not going to tell you. Um, but this is the new sound clip that we have on the soundboard. Yeah, so that's a, that's a fun one. Okay. I do what I want. <laughs> I do what I want. All right. Um, let's, let's, now that we've talked about all of that, let's kind of jump into some of the other comments that we got. Um, and so... As we talk about these things, we need to remember and be specific about defining custom versus tradition. Jonathan writes in, he says, hey guys, thank you for all you do. I have a question pertaining to Passover since it's coming up. That's right. If you don't know, Passover starts on Shabbat on Saturday is Nisan 14, which means at sundown the uh, is Nisan 15, hence another Shabbat. We get a double Shabbat in a row, two Shabbats in a row. It's the double blessing. Okay. And uh, so he goes on, what is your take on, and we get, to, by the way, I should say, I know I'm, I keep interrupting myself, but I should say that we get this comment every single year. We address it every single year. And so for our longtime listeners, just uh, just hang with us here. What is your take on being circumcised to partake in the feast? I am drawing from Exodus 12, 43 through 50. I understand that first and foremost, that a person must be circumcised of the heart. Also, I understand. And yeah, we see this in Colossians, right? Also, I understand that this passage in Exodus is the Lord speaking to Moses and Aaron leadership and not to individual people. I would disagree with that. The group my wife and I gather with does not have a leadership structure since it is a home group that can make decisions for the congregation as a whole. And so he goes on. Um, so basically his, his question is, is should we be have everyone be circumcised to celebrate Passover? I'm just going to address this really quickly, and then I'll let you jump in to wrap up anything if you want to. The answer is no. And the reason why is because the text tells us to uh, that uh, people need to be circumcised to partake in the Passover lamb. Uh, the the Passover sacrifice. It does not say that you need to, and we don't have the Passover sacrifice. You're not in Jerusalem. You're not at the temple. There is no temple. You even if you were in Jerusalem, you couldn't uh, you couldn't have the Passover lamb. I know that there are people who, uh, in certain uh, kind of fringe movements, who still say that they sacrifice the Passover lamb. This is nonsense. If yeah, if you're not uh, if you are not in Jerusalem at the temple, which doesn't stand right now, um, and sacrificing the lamb, then you don't have to be circumcised. There's nothing in the Torah that tells you that you have right. to be circumcised. Circum- to- right, and to put it positively, circumcision is required for 
participant participation in the official Pesach in Jerusalem. Right. So, and uh, we are in a diaspora situation where this is a, we are celebrating a memorial. On the other side of that, are we required to recite the words of Yeshua from the the Lord the Last Supper during our Pesach celebration? What do you think? Uh, so, yeah, actually, this is a broader question. You've kind of opened up a bigger question too, because uh, the, one of the questions is, you know, I've, I've. For, this gets back to innovation and tradition. Yeah, and and I've Yeshua often institutes a tradition, right? And I've often um, said that I believe that communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, however you want to say it. Um, is not actually bread and wine that is eaten every time believers get together or every week at church or every month at church. I actually think that it is actually talking about the Passover meal. And so um, I have argued in unpublished writings. <laughs> yes, I know. I still need to publish it. I have argued in unpublished writings that um, uh, we see in Luke the beginning the the uh, of the meal. There's a uh, a blessing over the bread and wine. And then at the end of the meal is when he does it again, and he says, in like manner, after the meal, he took the cup and said, do this in remembrance of me. I'm paraphrasing, shortening up, but basically that's... And uh, if we look in uh, in Dape Nine tradition, dinner customs of the Roman uh, Greco-Roman era, this is actually standard tradition. And so what I argue is that that is actually bookends of the entire meal. So I don't think that the elements of bread and wine are actually what he's talking about. In other words, take a cup and take this bread and do this specific thing in remembrance of me. I think he's saying do the entire Passover meal in remembrance of me. That's exactly right. And my answer is yes, we are obligated. I think so, yes. So in other words, if there's a believer, and I've seen this, so I've seen where, and I did it when like, this is over 20 years ago when I, when it was like, oh, it's like, oh, Passover, you know, then going to a Passover Seder as a Christian believer, where it was like a traditional Haggadah and no mention of, of Yeshua's words. Right. Yeah. Thinking, Oh, I'm, Oh, this is what a Passover is. And, and today I look at it uh, like, like Caleb's talking about, this is a, Yeshua gives us instruction for how to keep Pesach (laughs) as a memorial unto him. Exactly. Um, so Josh writes in, and this is on the heels of this other question. Josh writes in and says, in episode 30, uh, 335 and 336, you talked about Passover tradition specifically with regard to Jewish tradition. And I think that this, we will use the words tradition here because I think that this is actually handed down um, within Judaism, not within Christianity, obviously. So Josh is going to talk to this. But what about Christian Paschal tradition? Aha. Uh-huh. Recently, I have been studying the history and theology of the Eastern Orthodox Church, as well as attending a service every couple weeks. And I came across an Eastern hymn that I like called the Paschal Troparion. I'm probably saying that wrong. I have been told that it was composed as early as the second century CE. Ever since hearing it, I have been thinking about adding it to my community's Haggadah right after the reading of the Messiah's Passion, which is Matthew 26, 17 through 28, 20. Here's the text for the song. And this is what the song is. It says, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death. And to those in the tombs, he is bestowing life. This is an interesting question because... Basically, what I've done is I, as I've already said in in a show, I think, I don't know, 335, basically what I did was I tried to strip the Haggadah of anything that that I thought was 
Jewish tradition, as it were, and then kind of reconstruct and put in the things that I thought were uh, pertinent. And one of the things that I think is actually Christian tra tradition, and possibly started as obviously as custom, but um, Christian tradition is the afikomen, and we've talked about this numerous times on this show. Um, so I don't think that that's Jewish tradition. I think that that's actually Christian tradition. Um, I'm not going to tell anyone how to order their uh, their Passover Seder. I'm not going to tell anyone what traditions they should have or shouldn't have. Um, in fact, the only reason that I made the Haggadah available that I created was because people kept asking for it. I actually That was not the intent. I was not actually making that for other people. I was making it for my family. That was it. Um, however, to Josh, uh, this hymn that you have recited, uh, I actually... Uh, I, I want to do more research on this because I think that this is a great hymn that would be able to be uh, added into uh, a Haggadah. But what do you think, Rob? Yeah, I think it's great. To, again, we're talking about innovation in a way or right. re-implementation, uh, uh, re maybe, uh, of different traditions. I mean, uh, that's in effect what's happening, you know, when, when I stopped... Uh, observing Easter and shifted to becoming a quarter decimal, <laughs> right? Yep. Yep. I mean, it's like it, it's it, there's a, it in terms of my life trajectory, it's an innovation, it's like a shift. And I think there's more subtle ways of this is like saying, okay, I'm going to take something from the early church that I think is a beautiful poetic expression. It's you hold it up to the light of theological you know, principles or core doctrines. And right. if it cuts the mustard, it's, you know, why not include it? Exactly. <clears throat> okay. So we have a uh, question in the chat room and I think that this is an important question. So we will look at it. Uh, Love is bigger says, can y'all speak on Exodus twelve sixteen since the Pesach is having us make our meal on the Shabbat, especially since we have to make our meals to participate. Sure in it. Um, and so basically what is, uh, let me explain this for people who might not be, uh, have ever celebrated Passover before. Normally Passover, the majority of the time, I shouldn't say normally, the majority of the time Nisan 14 falls on a weekday and not on a Shabbat. This year it falls on Saturday. And so obviously we're supposed to rest and we're not supposed to do any work on the Shabbat. And, uh, so the question is, how are we supposed to prepare the meal for the Passover uh, which is the night of Saturday, if we're not supposed to do work like this on the Shabbat. And the the reference that is being made here is Exodus 12, 16. It says, on the first day, you shall hold a holy assembly. And on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what every everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. Okay. This is a great question, and I've heard some people say, oh, well, we were thinking about not having our Seder on Saturday, but doing it on Sunday. No, I think that, uh, I think, actually, there's there's entire uh, discussions on this within the Talmud. Not that I'm saying you should go read those or anything like that, but I think that basically we what we have here is the, uh, the allowance to be able to prepare for the Pesach. Now, with that said... One of the things that I recommend to people, this is my personal recommendation. You can take it or leave it. Uh, crock pots are an amazing thing. And uh, I, I must, you know, 
caveat here. Caleb is not an ordained rabbi. That's true. That is true. Okay. Now, uh, that, yes, yeah. One of the things I love doing is taking either your lamb, your uh, beef. You know, I, I'm going to do a beef roast this year, and we have three families that are making uh, the main dish, and then our entire community is getting together, and everybody's bringing something. So no one has to. No one's preparing the entire meal. Everybody has like one or two things that they're doing. So I get to do the uh, one of the main courses, one of three main courses. And every year we do tacos. And the reason we do tacos is because people can go through the line, put whatever they want on it. Everybody gets full. It's wonderful. So I'm doing a beef roast. I will wake up in the morning, 7 o'clock in the morning. I will put my beef roast into the crock pot. I will add a couple of things. I will turn it on. And then that's it. By the end of the day, uh, people will be able to, I'll shred it right before we eat. And it will fall apart beautifully. And it will take me all of, I don't know, maybe 10 minutes in total. Uh, so this is one of the reasons that I, uh, I think that uh, crockpots are a blessing from the Almighty. Because <laughs> I can actually use them. Thoughts? Yeah, I, it's a great verse, the, the passage from Exodus 12. And I would say, you know, Pre- things that are light and like salads and things that you can pop in the fridge, do those, do those Thursday and Friday, you know, get up, get that stuff done and make it easy for yourself, you know, and make, and uh, in a way it's, it's, you're just acknowledging that it is a Shabbat, but like Caleb just pointed out, this is a, you know, that the, the feast of Pesach overrides the Shabbat. That's right. In, in this re- in just in this regard. It doesn't mean go go to work, right? It doesn't mean go. Uh, it's not that kind of thing. It has to do with uh, food celebration items. Okay, and Lee brings up a great question. Don't tortillas have leaven? Uh, the answer is yes, if you use flour tortillas. However, corn tortillas do not have leaven in them. Uh, the rabbis say that you can't eat corn because it gives the appearance of rising, but corn does not have any leaven in it. So we use corn tortillas. Hope that helps. Um, okay, so we had a interaction on YouTube, and this was an interesting one. Um, I don't know how you would say this person's handle on YouTube, Bruggy, B-R-U-G-G-Y. Anyway, they wrote in that we were talking about tradition. And we were talking Yeah, we were talking about tradition for in regards to the Passover tradition and how I believe that a lot of the Passover tradition was actually um, Greco-Roman meal custom. Uh, and we see this within the uh, various writings of the Greco-Romans, dating back all the way 400 years before um, before the first century. And uh, so we we can piece together kind of what the the Greco-Roman meal customs were, and it looks pretty slam dunk here that the Jewish custom of the Passover, in many cases, not all, but in many cases, just took already established Roman Greco tradition and put their own um, meaning to it and said, oh, we had it first. And so this is what this person is responding to. They say, Messiah Matters, yes, it was late. They're talking about the Mishnah because they said, yeah, well, the you know, the, the Mishnah was late. And I said, yeah, that's my point, is that the Mishnah and the Talmud are late. So we can't take those and read them back in the first century. And they say, yes, it was late to be written down, but it went back much further than that. That is the rabbinical writings. You could take a lot of Jewish customs and say, look, that was a pagan, Babylonian, Persian, Greek, or Roman custom. But why? Something as simple as reclining at a table is coincidental. And people like to try to compare things to pagan, Roman, whatever. 
other nations' customs to discredit it. Okay, hang on just a second. Now, I agree, especially within the Torah movement, the Hebrew Roots movement, you have people who will find paganism behind every rock. Oh, Thanksgiving? Pagan. Fourth of July? Pagan. Right? The name Jesus? Pagan. This is nonsense. Um, these people are, they, they want to find paganism in, in every tradition. I'm not saying, and please don't, uh, this is a very important point. <clears throat> if you've heard nothing else in this show, hear this. I am not saying that these uh, traditions are necessarily pagan. The idea of reclining at table is not a pagan tradition. Just because something is Roman does not make it pagan. What I'm saying is that it was Roman tradition first. Not pagan tradition, Roman meal custom tradition. And the Jews simply adopted that custom as people would. So, for instance, we can see this within our own culture. Uh, I think that the majority, I would say probably 99% of people in America use uh, forks when they eat dinner. That is a Western tradition. That is not a... So is that pagan? Is it pagan that we're using forks? No, of course not. It's a simple meal tr a custom that we have adopted. If I lived in, say, Japan, I would probably use uh, chopsticks instead. And if you're in the Middle East, oftentimes people don't even use utensils. People use their hands in a, in a common bowl. So the point is, is, first of all, yeah, you cannot say that the rabbinical writings go back to the first century. You need proof of that. So that's number one. Second of all, there's nothing wrong with the Jews adopting Babylonian or Persian customs or Greek customs if they are not uh, pagan. The, Caleb, the names of the months are a perfect example. Exactly. Because in, in the Torah, the, the months are just numbered. But by the end of the Tanakh, we have Nisan, right? We have uh, these different months that are named according to the Babylonian name of the month. They're, those are not Those names of the months are not revealed from heaven. They are ancient Mesopotamian ter terminology. Right. And that's okay. There's no, the, uh, none of the scribes or prophets are upset. They're, they, they upset about idolatry, right? I mean, that's the railing against idolatry. Right. But idolatry it, uh, is not, um, uh, or adopting pagan practice is not uh, reflected just in something as simple as the name of the month. Right. And so ultimately when we talk, so why is it important to, to point these things out? Well, it's important because what you have is you have this pie in the sky idea that if it's Jewish, and this is from the Torah movement predominantly in the Messianic movement, if it's Jewish, it must be good. If it's not, if it ain't Scott, yeah. Scott it's just God. Right. So, I mean, the, the idea is all things Jewish is good and holy and the Jews have never ripped anything off. Everything that they've gotten is pure and holy because they're Jewish. This is simply this is not so true. Good. Okay, okay, holy. Again, we're getting back to tradition and the, like Matthew fifteen, Mark seven. What, what happens if I call something holy that God does not call holy? Is right. that is that idolatry? Right. If, if I start calling, one of the big things in the Second Temple period was the language of the sectarians were all of a sudden they're calling Hebrew the holy language. Right. Yeah, good point. Now, wait a minute. Now, there's a that, that, what happens then? There's a whole bunch of subsequent sociological consequences to their, to their sect about that value now. That means other languages are profane. 
And now you, and then now all of a sudden you're training people to think through this major filter. Right. In, in when when Israel's Kohanim are, are commanded in the Torah to teach Israel the difference between the holy and the profane, and then you have this source out there blurring, muddying up the waters. It's kind of the reverse of what David's email was about. Now right. all of a sudden, where the Kohanim were teaching clearly the difference between holy and profane, you have people out there fuzzing up the boundaries by right. saying, oh, you know, changing what we call holy. And uh, this is a, another topic, but uh, I'm reminded of it. So uh, let me let me take this one step further. When we look at Israel within the, uh, the Tanakh, and specifically, basically from the time that Israel gets the Torah on, right? You get into kings and chronicles and constantly. And this king did not walk with the Lord. Instead, he sacrificed his children on the high places and to the Baals and, you know, all these different things. And this, you know... You, king after king, and he didn't tear down the high places, and he was, you know, and God did not find favor in him because he was worshiping all these other gods. Were those customs all good? And the idea is, oh, well, Israel has turned from all that stuff, and now they worship the the, the one true God. Let me tell you something. Do a study in Gnosticism, and Rob recommended this book to me this last week, Major Trends in Jewish Mysticism by Gershom Sholem. You want to have your mind blown on Gnosticism today? It's Judaism. Modern Judaism has just adopted a significant amount of Gnostic belief. Uh, it's, it's really shocking. And so the idea that Israel has now turned to the, the one living God uh, and that they are that their hands are clean, there's no idolatry, I don't accept that. I don't think that's true. And so it's very important for us to say, are these customs that we're doing, are they legitimate? And I'm not saying that, please do not hear me say that, oh, anything Jewish is pagan. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is we need to be aware that just because it, it has a kippah on does not make it biblically sound. And we could say the same thing just because something says it's Christian. Exactly. Exactly. Right. I mean, the Mormons yes. are going to come and say they're Christians. Right. The, right. I don't know. Do the Jehovah's Witnesses say they're Christian? I, I yes. just I actually don't know the answer to that. Yes. One. Uh, yeah. I know that we have we have some some of our uh, uh, friends and supporters also from uh, the Ontario neck of the of North America. Right. Uh, come came out of Jehovah's Witness. So they probably would have something more specific to say is, is the use of the word Christian within those circles. I'm not familiar. I think it is. But the point is, is that I think that it, we've written, and we see this in bloodline superiority uh, theology. You know, uh, people, I've, I've heard people, even prominent, uh, quote unquote, messianics, um, like Itzhak Shapiro will tell you, oh, well, you're not Jewish. So you, you know, you need to learn from a Jew as if Gentiles can't study the scriptures or something, you know, it's just ridiculous. Like all things Jewish are good and which is nonsense. Uh, can you put the book in the chat? I can screenshot it. Um, let's see here. The book is the book that I was just, uh, referencing was major trends in Jewish mysticism by Gershom G. Sholem. Sholem. And, and the reason that this book is interesting is because, um, now, the reason that I found it interesting is because he's going to take the idea of early, and wh when I say early, I'm talking even before Christ, 
early mysticism, and we see this even with, uh, so, so why is it that in Acts you have Simon the Magician? He's Jewish. If, if there wasn't Jewish mysticism and Jewish magic, wouldn't people just say, oh, yeah, that's pagan. We're not going to have anything to do with that. No. Simon the Magician seems to have a, a pretty large following. And so we see this Gnostic, uh, and we can look in, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you straight out, this is not like a page turner. This isn't something you're going to sit down and be like, oh, man, no, I can't put also, it down. It's, it's quite, it's, you know, it's what, 80 or 90 years old now. And, and from its original publication, I think. I mean, and there are some fine-tuning that scholars subsequently from Sholem have said they're quibbling with certain points. But right. it's still a, a, a kind of a major early, you know, middle or mid-20th century and, English and if text. Not, if you're not studying Gnosticism or Jewish mysticism, I'm going to tell you this will probably be a really good sleep aid because it's not a page-turner. It's, it's difficult to read. With that said, some of the things that he talks about in here, you know, I've done a lot of study in Hasidic Judaism, and I've done, and now I'm doing study in Gnosticism. And it, it's, I mean, I feel like I'm reading the same material. It, it's unbelievable how much, and they, the thing about um, Hasidic Judaism is that they haven't even changed the terms. They, ha- they have not even changed the terms. You know, the Gnostics believed that God had 12 emanations. Guess what the the uh, the Hasid say about the ten, the 12 Sephirot? They're the 12 emanations of God, uh, right? I mean, and I could just go on and on and on. The point is that uh, the point is that it's it's kind of shocking. I, I think that people don't realize the amount of of what's gone into their texts and into their belief. Right. Uh, okay. And uh, as a shameless plug, we, I d- have had a few emails since we've been mentioning this. Uh, maybe next year, Lord willing, at Tor Resource Institute, we'll do the uh, Jewish mystical traditions uh, class. So, yeah, that would be awesome. For which Sholem is one of the readings. Okay. But of course, it's a it's a pretty it's a reading intensive. Love is bigger says Gnostics equals Essenes? Question mark. Yes and no. Um, there is certainly some Gnostic belief within the Qumran sect, and and actually in the work that I'm doing on on uh, Colossians right now, I, I actually reference some of the Qumran writings, uh, and they certainly did have uh, those kind of beliefs. We really start to see a, a formation and a better grounding of understanding within Gnostic belief uh, into the early Christian period. Clement of Alexandria, for instance, uh, has an entire uh, hierarchy of angels. So humans become angels, angels become archangels. Um, then you get into the Jewish mystical writings in the third and fourth century. Um, Metatron becomes, or uh, Enoch becomes Metatron. Metatron becomes the lesser yod heh vav And now you have people like Shapira trying to say that Yeshua is you know, is Metatron. I mean, it, it, this is... Uh, this is someone, yeah, who who really, boy, you got to watch out for got to watch out for right um okay uh, so anyway let's let's do one more this is a interesting question uh Gio, giorno giorno i think is the name uh so writes in actually didn't write in this is a youtube comment dear robin caleb question on seeking a biblical biblically sound congregation this is something that i've uh, had a, been pushing hard recently do you think it would be better 
to go to a congregation where it is biblically sound overall, but don't keep the Torah. And I'm going to guess that when he says don't keep the Torah, what he means is don't keep a Saturday Shabbat, don't celebrate the uh, biblical festivals, and don't keep a kosher diet. So don't keep those three things is basically where I think it is going. Rather than a messianic congregation, so a biblically sound congregation that doesn't keep Torah, rather than a messianic congregation where it upholds the Torah to the point where it overshadows Christ, well, probably the ideal scenario is to have a Christ-centered congregation that also obeys the Torah. But ideal is not often available. Uh, you had a great response to this when I first read this to you the other day. Do you want to uh, start? I don't remember what I said, so you go. Uh, you said anything that overshadows Christ should be we should run from. Oh, gotcha. Right. I remember that. And I completely agree with that. Basically, the idea is um, if you have a congregation and anything in that congregation is overshadowing Christ, uh, then you should not be in that congregation. And I I, I don't we'd have to look at that case by case. But what I mean, what I would mean by that is you're going and there's uh, like nobody's mentioning salvation by grace, by faith, you know. Um, that Yeshua of, you know, the, who Yeshua is, you know, the incarnate son of God who, who purchased redemption for his people and, and, you know, our life is in him. Right. You know, I mean, if you're not getting the core and you could say, well, that's the core gospel message, maybe. Um, if you're not getting that, you know, then, then uh, I would let the leadership know first off before, you know, if you, if, don't just pack up and leave. Try to, you know, make an effort to say, hey, where's Yeshua? You know, can we, can we, what's going on here? Here's the thing is that I, I everybody always gets upset when I say this. I would probably take a um, Bible-believing, evangelical, uh, reformed church uh, with dual leadership over... <coughs> 85% of the Messianic congregations out there, at least. And the reason why is because I think that um, issues such as bloodline superiority are tantamount and just as uh, egregious as a rejection of the Sabbath. I think that uh, there are all sorts of issues that usually plague the Messianic congregations, people calling themselves rabbis, people uh, using Hebrew word pictures, bloodline superiority, all sorts of stuff. And I think that those ultimately are, uh, they are opposed to the true gospel. And so I think that uh, the, the warnings against a different gospel are much more uh, egregious or spoken of much more heavy than ideas of uh, wrong interpretation of, of uh, certain uh, laws. Now, don't please don't hear me say that I don't think it's important that people uh, keep the Sabbath or the festivals. I certainly do. But if you have someone saying, well, your kid can't be bar mitzvahed because they're not Jewish, and my kid is going to have a bar mitzvah next week because they we are Jewish. And we're, basically, we're better than you. Um, ultimately, this is a offense against the gospel because, according to God, there is no, neither Jew nor Gentile when it comes to salvation. 
Um, we are all seen as sinners, and then we are all seen as redeemed by the blood of Christ. Um, so uh, ultimately, I think that, and a lot of people do not like my answer to that, but I, I personally would often take a evangelical Reformed congregation over a Messianic synagogue. Rob? Yeah, I can appreciate that. I, all I know, I mean, I think I have more experience with the different types of expressions of, quote, the Messianic movement than I do of different expressions of American Christianity. Right. And, wow, <laughs> there's a lot of craziness out there. Mike Mike just put in our chat room, you can't have tacos for Passover because you ain't Mexican. <laughs> and that's, I mean, that's like blood, ultimately that's like bloodline superiority. It's like, oh, you can't keep the Sabbath because you're not Jewish. Anyway, keep going. No, that, that's all. Yeah, that's fine. <clears throat> um, yeah, I, I know a lot of people uh, have have really pushed against such uh, uh, such claims by me. Um, and, you know, I, admittedly, and maybe I should say this outright, I, I should say that uh, we are blessed in our area. We live in one of the most liberal states in the United States. Um, people are, I mean, the, uh, the agendas of the LGBTQ plus, uh, the agenda of, I mean, you should see some of the stuff that's going on in the public schools now. It's, it's shocking. Um, and we've even wanted to, we've even talked about moving because of how liberal this state is. With that said, within our general area, we have probably, uh, four or five solid evangelical reform churches that are, that I know the pastors of, they, uh, they love the Lord. We get along really well. Um, and they know where I stand on, on the Torah, but, uh, that has never really been an issue. Now I know that that's not the case with a lot of people in a lot of different areas. We get calls all the time for people to say, I've been kicked out of a church or, you know, there's no church that I can find that, that will let me come or whatever. Um, so I understand that uh, my situation may be different than others, but uh, yeah, we the Lord has really blessed us in in our area and uh, to find good believers. Anyway, all right, Passover man, we gonna do a Passover uh, a Passover show next week? We'll do a matzah. It should be a yeah. We'll eat matzah. Messiah matters matzah. <laughs> Three M. Ah uh, yes. All right. Hey, thanks everybody for uh, the questions and for the comments and for being a part of the show. Thank you to the chat room. Always good to have you guys around. Um, you keep us on our toes and some great conversations that have gone on in the chat room. Uh, we certainly appreciate all of our producers. If you want to become a producer, our spring producership is coming up. You can become an executive producer by going to TorahResource.com and then clicking on or hovering over resources and going down to Messiah Matters. All the information is on that page. And uh, that should roll over here probably in the next week or two. Um, so keep your eyes open for that. We are also extremely, extremely grateful to all of our supporters. Uh, you can become a supporter for as little as $5 a month. And thanks, Lee, for the super chat. Yeah, thank you, Lee, for the super chat. We appreciate all of this goes into actually helping us keep this show on the air. And uh, we will try to put something up, uh, uh, something new for our supporters in the supporters page within the next week or two. All right. Well, we certainly hope that this conversation has done at least one thing, and that is to glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Why? You know why? Because Messiah matters. <laughs>